Hey, our Bible study time is going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can fire up your cell phone. Maybe you've got the Bible app or a tablet. Uh, or ushers have some Bibles that you can use. They're going to come down the aisle. If you need a Bible, just wave at our ushers because we're going to read one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament today. So if you want a Bible, just wave at our ushers. They'll give you one. If you don't have one, put your name in this one and keep it. Uh, we've given away more than 1,000 Bibles since our church started just like this. So we would love for you to have one because in Acts chapter 15, we come to one of the pinnacle moments in the entire New Testament. And let me say this to kind of get your attention and set the tone for this morning. If you are a Christian, and probably not everyone in this room today is a Christian, and that's fine. We have I'm, I'm sure a lot of people every Sunday who are, who are not Christians who come to our church just kind of trying to figure out what this thing's all about or maybe a parent makes them come or uh, maybe a friend makes them come or a spouse or potential spouse makes them come. Um, so I, I don't assume that everyone in here is a Christian. But if you're a Christian and you didn't have to first become Jewish in order to become a Christian, it was because of Acts chapter 15. Let me say that again now that you kind of leaning in a little bit. If you're a Christian who didn't have to become Jewish first, you have what happened in Acts chapter 15 to thank for your Christianity. Because in Acts chapter 13, we started reading last week in Acts 13 and 14, and we read about this unbelievable spread of Christianity. I mean, Christianity was going global, and as Christianity began to spread throughout the ancient world, people were giving their lives to Jesus, and the church became a very, very special place. The church became a place that was focused on two things. Uh, the church was focused on making sure if there were physical needs in the area the church was, that they met those. If there were hungry people, they were going to figure out how to feed them. If there were thirsty people, they were going to figure out how to get them something to drink. If they needed a place to stay, they were going to try to figure out a place for them to stay. The church was about figuring out what needs there were and meeting those needs. The church was also about figuring out what spiritual needs there were. If marriages were hurting, they wanted to touch them. If parents needed advice on something, they wanted to speak into that. They wanted to figure out the spiritual needs of people in their community and meet those. So this church was an unbelievable place where people were meeting Jesus, growing spiritually, they were helping people. But in Acts chapter 15, the church kind of pressed pause to figure out whether they were allowed to keep doing this in the manner that they were doing it. And the scene in Acts chapter 15 goes from the church at Antioch, where the Apostle Paul started the church, and it was the place that people were first called Christians. The people in Antioch looked at the church, and they said they act so much like Jesus that they called them Christians, which means followers or imitators of Christ. We talked a few weeks ago about best friends who, you know, who start dressing alike, who start looking alike. Some of us know some people whose pets kind of even look like them a little bit. They've grown so close to their pets. This church got so close to Jesus that when people looked at him, they were like, man, that church reminds me a lot of Jesus. So they called him Christians. The scene shifts from Antioch back to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch again in Acts chapter 15 as they tried to figure out whether or not these people were allowed to keep being Christians and whether or not they were allowed to connect to Jesus. Check out Acts 15. Here's how it went down. It says, certain people came down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem was, to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers, listen here, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Now, let's stop right there. They came to this church full of Christians, and they said, wait, you missed something. Unless you become Jewish, you can't be a Christian. So what was happening in Acts 15.1. Some people came down to the church and said, time out. Unless you're Jewish, according to all the Old Testament stuff, you can't be Christians. Verse 2 says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Later, Paul would write the book of Galatians. Paul wrote the book of Galatians right after Acts chapter 15 happened. And Paul said in Galatians, I almost punched Peter in the face 
I was so mad that this happened. Like Paul gives us the backstory of this, and he said some people came down. One of them was Peter. He, he named him, and he's like, man, I stood up to his face. Like I was going to go to the mat because of what they were telling people. So Galatians is an interesting look into Acts chapter 15. So this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with him. Paul wanted to punch Peter. I would have loved to have seen that. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, those are Jewish teachers, stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They have to become Jews, or they're not going to be allowed to be in the church. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, We believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James, this is Jesus' little brother, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Simon Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it's written. After this, I'll return... I'm going to rebuild David's fallen tent. That's Israel. Its ruins I'll rebuild. I'll restore it. Why? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, listen, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Now I want to stop right there. Because in Acts 15, 19, we find a verse that has made it easy for you and I to connect to God through Jesus. Because up until James, Jesus' oldest little brother spoke up and said, listen, we got to do away with this nonsense or no one is going to be able to come to Jesus. Up until James said, this is going to be the way we do things, who knows what would have been required for us to connect to Jesus and become a Christian. But we know what the Gentile problem was. The Gentiles were asking the question in Acts 15, what do I have to do to turn to God? I, I would like to connect to God in a way that's real, in a way that's relational. What do I have to do to connect to God? And the teachers were teaching them, verse 2, they said you have to model ethnic Judaism first. You get, you get to become Jewish like in your culture. Now they said in verse 2 you need to become circumcised. This is always an odd thing to discuss publicly, um, circumcision. But what that meant, just a quick Bible background lesson on circumcision, God said that, that basically the spiritual DNA of the world was going to be passed on through Jewish people. So God said, I am going to divinely mark the passing of DNA in a way when, when a man's seed goes to a woman's egg and creates an embryo, symbolically, it's going to be something special about the Jewish people. They're going to carry some spiritual DNA in them symbolically. That, that's what that's going to mean is that I am blessing this people in their genetic DNA so that they might tell the world about me. And the Jews said, if you're going to become a Christian, you've you got you to do that first. It's like, you know, that, 
that would have been an, an odd class to take in church. You know, it's like, hey, everyone who wants to join the church, there's a medical room in the back, and, you know, we'll see you when you're done. They're like, you know, I don't know that I want to be a Christian today. So they wanted them to model ethnic Judaism, but then they wanted them to model, verse 5, religious Judaism. They said, you have to, if you're going to become a Christian, you have to, you have to keep all the requirements of the Old Testament. The Apostle Peter got up and said, hang on, time out. You're asking them to do something in order to become a Christian that no person on planet Earth has ever been able to do. Peter's like, I failed in being perfect before God. You failed in being perfect before God. Our fathers and our ancestors failed in being perfect before God. Yet we're going to tell everyone else who ever comes that until you can become perfect before God, you can't connect to Christ. Basically, these Jews were saying, become perfect in God's eyes, then you can become a Christian. Peter said, we... That cannot be the message of the church. The church's message can't be if you're willing to become perfect, you can become a Christian. That, that can't be the message of the church. And basically, one of the most important conversations in the Bible begins to take place as they wrestle through this issue. Acts 15 teaches us some of the greatest spiritual truth in the entire Bible about what it means to really turn to God and live for God. And the whole basis of it is Acts 15, 19 where James says we can't make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. We've got to remove obstacles that stand in the way of people coming to Jesus. And what they did is they basically made three key decisions. Said, here's the three things that's going to allow someone to come to Jesus. But as a part of these, there were three major consequences of those decisions. They basically said, we're going to make it as easy as possible to come to Jesus, but then we're going to teach people how to follow Jesus, and these three decisions are going to carry with them three consequences that are going to radically change people's lives. And what we see in the early church in Acts 15 is a church that is laser-focused on helping people come to Jesus and then teaching them how to follow Jesus. But the overriding message is let's not make this difficult. Let's get Jesus into the hands of the world. So the first message that we want to learn in Acts chapter 15 is don't make coming to Jesus difficult. Don't make coming to Jesus difficult. You could even write in your notes, don't make connecting to Jesus difficult. Don't make turning to God difficult. The Gentiles said, we want to turn to God. What do we have to do? There was a group that said, we got to become perfect. If you want to be a Christian, you have to do all these things right. And you have to to literally change your culture and your ethnicity. You have to lean into a different culture and ethnicity than you've ever really lived before. And people said, that's impossible. And the church leaders got together and said, no, we're... That is not the way we're going to allow people to turn to Jesus. We're going to make sure that we don't make coming to Jesus difficult. And they said, we're going to do that by three ways. Number one, we're going to start with Jesus as Lord. We're going to start with Jesus, not Judaism. And in Acts 15, 11, after they boiled down everything, after Peter said, I couldn't, I couldn't be a perfect Jew, you couldn't be a perfect Jew, here's what Peter said. Peter said, here's how Christianity begins. We believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It starts with Jesus. So we actually got to read last week in Acts 13 and 14 the Apostle Paul's message that he entered every town and he preached. And here's what he said about Jesus. And in Acts 13, 38, he said, Jesus forgives you. In Acts 13 and 39, he said, Jesus frees you from your past. In Acts Acts 13, 48, I think it is, he said, Jesus gives you eternal life. And they said, let's start with Jesus because here's what Jesus does. Jesus forgives. Jesus frees. Jesus gives eternal life. Let's not make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. Let's tell them who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do. But there's a difference between what happened in Acts 15 and what we see happening so often in churches today. This thought of coming to Jesus in the New Testament was not a decision. 
It was a commitment. And Christianity is a commitment, not a decision. And I think a lot of people kind of, kind of misunderstand that. They decide to follow Jesus and then, and then they secondarily decide whether or not they're willing to commit to the life that Jesus wants them to live. But Christianity is a process where you commit your life to follow Jesus, but it starts with Jesus. It doesn't start with Judaism. It doesn't start with cleaning up your life. It doesn't start with getting perfect. It doesn't start with making right all the wrongs in your life. It just starts with Jesus because Jesus forgives, Jesus frees, and Jesus gives eternal life. So they said, we're not going to make coming to Jesus difficult. We're going to start with Jesus and let anyone come to Jesus. Then number two, we're going to teach him God's word. So we're going to start with Jesus, but after they make a commitment to Jesus, we have to teach them how Jesus wants them to live their life because they're not going to know. So it's going to start with Jesus, but then it's going to continue with teaching. How do we know this was important? Acts 13, or Acts, uh, Acts 15, 35. The church had been started, the church had been serving, the church had been giving, the church had been growing. The, the church was going on. People had already decided to live for Jesus. They were living for Jesus. But we see in Acts 15.35, Paul and Barnabas stayed there and they continued to teach and preach the word of God. Because once you decide to follow Jesus, you have to learn what that looks like and how that works and how you're supposed to live your life. So they started with Jesus, then they taught God's word. But the question is, how did they know if it was working? How did they know if their process, how did they know people who were saying, yes, I come to Jesus, were really following Jesus? That, like that is the question. I've done a summer full of youth ministry. I've, I've done youth camps this summer in Florida, in Georgia, in Texas. I preached to students, almost 2,000 students from 52 churches in 19 states. And we saw God move in incredible ways. And even as a pastor standing on a stage, when kids are coming down the aisle and they're kneeling, you wonder how many of them are really connecting to Jesus. How many of them are here because their friends are here? How many of them will not keep this commitment further than the exit door? How many of these people making spiritual commitments will forget about Jesus by the time they get off the bus when they get on? You're always wondering, is it, is it working? Is this real? Is this real in someone's life? Are they really connecting to Jesus? And how do we know that? The early church began to ask those questions, and Peter said, there is actually a process, not for us to judge people's hearts, but w there's a process by which we can look at how God is moving in people's life and we can see whether or not the Spirit of God there. And Peter said, we have to learn to trust and test the Holy Spirit. We have to learn to trust and test the Holy Spirit because that's going to show us whether people are really turning to Jesus, whether they're really connecting to God, or whether it's just kind of a show or a momentary thing. And in Acts 15, 8, Peter said, here's what proves these people have really connected to God. They've really turned to God. He said, God knows the heart. And he showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he gave it to us. The Apostle Paul later writing to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1 said, everything kind of boils down to trusting that the Holy Spirit is in your life and testing that the Spirit of God is in you as you try to follow God. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You... You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believe, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Apostle Paul said when someone turns to God, God gives something to them. He does something in their spirit. He does something in their soul. He begins to change them on the inside. And Paul said it's that change on the inside that will tell them they're moving in the right direction, 
that will show others that they're moving on the right direction. And one day when they get to eternity, God's going to look for that seal of the Holy Spirit in their life to say, you really radically connected to me. But Acts 15 is about so much more than what's needed to come to Jesus. There's also a large amount of information on what's needed to follow Jesus. And I want to be honest with you today. I I think I'm going to challenge some of you. I might make some of you angry. I might confuse some of you this morning. I might make you walk out of here scratching your head a little bit saying, "Mm, you know, I don't know. Don't know if Christianity's for me. Don't know if that church is for me. But when we read Acts 15, there's more about coming to Jesus. There's a lot about following Jesus. And I think the church has missed that. I think a lot of churches today say, come to Jesus, he forgives, he frees, he gives you eternal life, and then we stop right there. It's all about coming to Jesus and not following Jesus. But Acts chapter 15 is is about following Jesus. And we can't make it difficult to come to Jesus, but listen, as a church, we can't allow following Jesus, Jesus to become diluted. We can't just make up what it means to be a Christian. We can't just make up the rules once we come to Jesus of how we are going to follow Jesus. And in Acts 15, we get a clear message that you can't make coming to Jesus difficult. But there's a clear message that you can't allow following Jesus to become diluted. So the dictionary defines this word diluted as making something weaker in force, content, or value by modifying it or adding other elements to it. And I think there are some people who claim to have come to Jesus who have kind of changed what it means to follow Jesus, and I think they've actually lost the value of Jesus in their life, or they've never had the value of Jesus in their life. Because as we go through life, we're going to realize, and I think the church is maybe realizing there's a bit of a crisis. Coming to Jesus is only half the story, and we're trying to figure out what following Jesus looks like. And let me say this, figuring out how to follow Jesus lasts a lifetime. I mean, it's a journey. That's why we call this church what we call it, because... I don't believe anyone in this room has figured out how to follow Jesus to the best of their ability yet. None of us in here will perfect following Jesus in this life. We're just on a journey that one day we'll get right in eternity. But this part of lifelong Christianity, following Jesus, we can't let it become diluted. We got we to go back to Acts chapter 15 and say, what does the Bible say about following Jesus? And guess what? It says the same thing about following Jesus that it says about coming to Jesus. But if you change the emphasis of what words you're looking at, it changes everything. Look at number one again. So how do we come to Jesus? We say we start with Jesus as Lord. Okay, how do we follow Jesus? We start with Jesus as Lord. But I changed the word. You filled in the blank there because I need your focus now to be on the word Lord, not start and not Jesus. Because in Acts 15, 11, Peter said the first step of coming to Jesus is also the first step of following Jesus. I want you to look at Acts 15, 11, because I'm going to have you say a word out loud. So have your Bibles open and be looking at it. Peter said, we believe it is through the grace of our... What's the word there? One more time. We believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Do you know that the best English word to convey the meaning of the term Lord is master? It's an uncomfortable word. I mean, we sing the word Lord. We just sang the word Lord. I, I was counting this. I think we said the word Lord in almost every worship song this morning. Kind of proclaimed it loudly. We see it as a spiritual word. We hear it as a religious term, and it is. But the best definition for the word Lord is the word master. So let me ask you a question as we try to learn how to follow Jesus. Is Jesus really in charge of your life? And does he have the final say on everything? 
Is Jesus your master? And will you do whatever he tells you to do? Because Peter said Christianity starts with our master, Jesus. Have you even contemplated this as you follow Jesus? Or would you follow Jesus as a master? Would you do anything Jesus tells you to do? Would you believe anything Jesus tells you to believe? Would you change your beliefs if Jesus says the way you believe is wrong and this is the way you need to believe now? Do you manage your finances and your friendships the way that Jesus says to? She's almost gone. (laughs) Sorry, I I just saw y'all listening as she was going. Will you forgive someone who's hurt you because Jesus says to? Like, I want you to think about this for a minute. Is Jesus really master? Because we live in an American culture that says, I don't have a master. I mean, we, we live in a culture that says, I, I, I am my boss. Nobody tells me what to do. I may work for somebody who's my employer, but I am in charge of my life. Are you in charge of your life or is Jesus in charge of your life? The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, let me take it a step further for you, because Paul teaching a young man, Timothy, who he was trying to teach how to really live for Jesus, said, here's how you need to understand your relationship with God. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Paul said to Timothy, who was now really mature in his faith, this isn't like Christianity 101, it's kind of next level stuff, but Paul said, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Because no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but he rather tries to please his commanding officer. Now, I've never been to basic training. I didn't serve in the military. I saw full metal jackets. I, you know, I know a little bit of what that might have been like. I've, I've seen some movies about military stuff. But I just can't imagine your drill instructor coming to your bunk at 5 a.m. and telling you to get up and you saying, you know, I, just, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to do it today. I just can't imagine that would work well. I can't imagine your drill instructor saying, you know, we're brown today. And you say, you know, I, I think I'm going to do blue. I can't imagine that, that you'd be allowed to stay in that army very long. Yeah, there's a lot of people who follow Jesus. And when Jesus says, you know what, you're wrong about this. You need to do this. We say, you know what, I don't think so. I think I'm going to stay just the way I am. And we come to Jesus, but we don't follow Jesus. Maybe Luke chapter 3 gives us the best picture of what Christianity should look like as we're moving towards this process of making Jesus master. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing people. People are coming to him because their heart has been changed and they want to connect to God in a powerful way. And the apostle, the, the, John the Baptist says this in Luke 3, 8 through 14. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That basically means let your actions show that your heart has changed. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Watch this in verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and everyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked. Look at their question. What should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, look at the question, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, this text of scripture is way more descriptive than prescriptive. What does that mean? It describes how a Christian should come to Jesus, but it's not a prescription. You don't don't have to do it in this manner, in this timetable. 
But the description of someone who makes Jesus master is this. On everything in life, every issue of life, every opinion of life, they say, Jesus, what should I believe? How should I respond? How should I act? They are people who go to their master for everything. And what we learn in scripture is Jesus works really patiently with people as we try to figure things out spiritually. But Jesus doesn't work part-time. Jesus is patient with us as we follow, but he doesn't work part-time, which means we can't check in and check out spiritually. On this issue, I like Jesus. On this issue, I don't like Jesus. I had someone say to me the other day that I was in some dialogue with, walking in through some some things of Scripture. They said, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to let a 2,000-year-old book tell me how to live. And I said, then how can you let a 2,000-year-old Savior forgive your sins? Like, you you can't just pick and choose which parts of it you want to follow. And most of us want, like, we want Jesus to work the first shift of our life. Like, 8 to 5, 7 to 4, 6 to 3. Like, when we're at work, we want God to bless that part of our life. We want Jesus to bless the third shift. When we lay down at night, we want to lay down in safety. We want to be protected. We want God to take care of us and our family sleep in our house. We want Jesus to work the third shift. We really like Jesus to work the graveyard shift. When we're in the graveyard, we want Jesus working in our life, and we want to know that part of our life is taken care of. But do we really want Jesus to be our master full time? Because the fact is, I've heard it said this way, Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. Like he is master of everything or nothing. That's what master means. And if you're not open to allowing Jesus to become master, you are not following the Jesus of the Bible. Danielle and I, did a wedding. The chairman of our elders, Jeff Roberts, who's back from Texas, welcome. His son got married in Longview, Texas, in a beautiful vineyard on about a 100-degree day, Friday evening. And Danielle and I were down there doing the wedding. And on the way back, we were going to Dallas. And Dallas has grown so fast. Like, they're just, there is way more, they're behind the curve on all their construction. So, like, there's new roads, new exits, new highways. They've got more new stuff than old stuff. And a lot of the GPS doesn't line up well in Dallas. So at one point we were heading to our hotel and, and, and I thought I was on the highway because my GPS said that I was on the highway, but I realized I was on a brand new outer road that had not even been like laid into the GPS yet. But because the outer road was running right next to the highway, the GPS thought I was in the right place, so it just kept, kept telling me to go straight. And I told Danielle, you know, the, it looks like these things are going in the same direction, so we'll just stay here. But here's what happened. That outer road and that highway... They ran beside each other for a little bit, but eventually they had different destinations. And like I I was going kind of beside the highway for a little bit, but eventually I veered off and I had to take a bunch of other roads because the outer road did not lead me to the same destination as the highway did. And a lot of us are following a Jesus that's really close to the biblical Jesus. And in a lot of areas, it's like, man, we are right in line with Jesus. But when Jesus isn't master, the destination that we are following Jesus to is not the destination of the biblical Jesus of forgiveness and of peace and of hope and eternity. The destination is different. Proverbs said there's a way that seems right to man. It looks like the same path, but in the end it leads to death. A lot of us want a Jesus who's our friend but not our master because no one's going to tell us what to do. But isn't that the very definition of God? Someone who's in charge? Someone who gets to tell people what to do? So... How do I follow Jesus? I start with Jesus as Lord. I start with Jesus as master. How do I follow Jesus? Secondly, I teach God's word. 
Because if you're in here today and you want to follow Jesus as master, the question has to be, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? You should have more questions than answers unless you've been raised in a monastery studying the word of God somewhere. In Acts 15, 35, what do we see? Paul and Barnabas stay there, and every day they're just teaching people how to live. It's crazy because after fighting to make it simple to come to Jesus, Paul and Barnabas then made it clear how to follow Jesus. It's very simple to come to Jesus. But you really got to dig deep to follow Jesus. That's why I believe Jesus is patient with us. That's why I believe Jesus is patient over a lifetime. Because there's too much to learn. We'll never learn everything we need to learn to have our heart perfectly shaped to follow Jesus. And the mind and the actions, regardless of anything you ever do, always follow the heart. It's your heart that wants to start working out. Your mind creates a plan, then you have to do it. It's your heart that decides, man, I need to lose weight. Then you create a plan, then you do it. It's your heart that decides, man, I need to repair this relationship. Then you figure out your actions. So our heart comes to Jesus, and then our mind and actions figure out how to follow Jesus well. And in Galatians 5, we see powerful, powerful teaching. Again, that Paul wrote right after Acts chapter 15, because let me tell you what was happening in the churches of Galatia. Paul wrote a church to the book of Galatians, and he said, I just went to bat for you. He had just returned from Jerusalem, according to Galatians 1 and 2. He said, I just got back from Jerusalem, and I fought for you. I just got back from Jerusalem, and I did everything in my power for them to recognize that I removed all the obstacles that you had in your way of coming to Jesus. I fought to make it simple for you to come to Jesus. And he said, but you are not fighting to follow Jesus. And you've took the simplicity of salvation and you've applied it to Christianity. And he said, you are showing that you don't even care about Jesus. You've come to Jesus, but you're not following Jesus. He said, you've got to get it together. Here's how it sounds in Galatians 5, 13 through Galatians 6, 2. He said, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. He basically said, I made sure you didn't have to follow all the tenets of Judaism to follow Jesus. You're called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you're going to be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires was contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit was contrary to the flesh, and they're in conflict with each other, so that you don't do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Then he said the acts of the flesh are obvious. He just throws some out. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. All all those things are bad. He said, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance. That means patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, listen, You've come to Jesus. And he said, now you've got a problem. Inside you, you've got this spirit that wants to make Jesus master. And you've got this flesh that is not going to give up control. And he said, every day you're fighting this battle. Is Jesus in charge or am I in charge? Is what Jesus says right or what I believe right? 
Is what the Bible tells me about this issue what I should believe or what I've been raised to believe? You've got this issue between the spirit that's in you, the flesh that you've always carried. And he said, every day they are like knocking heads like crazy. And he said, you have to decide every day whether or not you're going to let the spirit be master or whether you're going to be in charge. And Paul said, that's why we're teaching you all these things so you can learn what is right and do what is right. But there's a problem that I see that I see and that I feel a tension that I see and feel within the church. And it's this. It's clear how to follow Jesus. However, unless we accept the authority of Jesus, we won't accept the teaching of Scripture. Like, unless we believe that Jesus is really master, we really don't care what he says about anything. So how do we follow Jesus? It starts with making Jesus master. Because not until you believe he's in charge... Will you be willing, even if it takes everything in you and it's a bloody war, will you be willing to do what Jesus tells you to do? Because it's the teaching of God's word in the position of God in our life. Like it's the teaching of of God's word as God that shows us how to live and walk with him. Yet many people don't see this as God's word. See, it's kind of a guidebook, you know, that's filled with some good suggestions. God doesn't make suggestions. He's God. He gives commands. That's what, that's what, that's what God does. And if he's really God, he's, he's allowed to do that. If he's really master, he's allowed to do that. It's why it's such a massive responsibility to teach God's word clearly and fully. Because if you have Christians that are willing to accept Jesus as master and they're willing to accept God's word as authority and you kind of mess around with God's word, you're messing around with somebody's fundamental beliefs of who they are and how they should act in life and what they should believe in life. That's why Paul told Timothy, take very seriously that you get to teach God's word because people who see Jesus as master are going to follow God's word and they may go through some major conflict in life to get to a point where they accept God's word. But man, you've got to be careful how you teach it. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul said, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Because there are times when God's word is needed to step in and resolve a spiritual dispute. And a lot of times it's when our opinions that aren't biblically based work their way into our faith. And guess what? Our opinion has to become secondary when compared with the teaching of God's word. You say, says who? God. Well, who's he? God. And, you know, in case you miss that, that's kind of how that works. It's how a master is, is in charge. You say, well, I don't, I don't want to change my mind. I don't want to change my thoughts. I don't want to change my opinions. I don't want to change my beliefs. I'm here to tell you that is okay. But you cannot follow Jesus with that attitude. Because in 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says the culmination of our faith is to have the mind of Christ. Our mind changes. I don't know about you, but my mind needs changing. My mind was born selfish. Did any of you have children? Did you teach them the word mine, or did they learn that one on their own? I was born with a selfish mind. I was born with a rebellious mind. Any of you have kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews? Did you teach them the word no, or did they learn that one on their own? We are born selfish we're born rebellious. We are born in, needs of, in need of parents, in need of teachers, in need of coaches, in need of mentors. 
in need of God to kind of rewire us to be who God wants us to be. And I have people all the time who say, Christian, what do you think about stuff? What's your opinion on this? And because I have tried to lean into Galatians 2.20, I answer that question in an interesting way. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says this about his opinions, about his life in general. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. You should write those words on your sermon notes and see if you really believe those or if you're willing to have that be your existence. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So people come up to me and say, Christian, hey, what do you, um, what do you think about this? And I always say, it, it doesn't matter what I think. I, ha- I have no opinions on that. Why, why do you care what I think? My wife doesn't care what I think most of the time. My kids don't care what I think most of the time. Most people in my life don't care what I think. Why do you care what I think? And I tell them, I, when I came to Jesus as master, I learned that one of the requirements of that is that all of my thoughts and opinions I had to give away so that I could start following all his thoughts and opinions. So your question to me as pastor is the wrong question. I don't want you to ask me what I think. I want you to ask me what God thinks. I want you to ask me what God's word says. I'm never going to give you my opinion because I don't have an opinion. My opinion, I, I no longer have an opinion. I no longer live, Paul says. Given away my life. I now live for Jesus. I can tell you Jesus' opinion based on the word of God of what he says. I can tell you what Jesus thinks based on the word of God and what he says. So Christian, what if Jesus thinks something or Jesus wants me to think differently than the way I've always thought? You got to work through that. And I love how gentle Paul was when he wrote to the church in Philippians. He talked to them about this process of spiritual maturity and about giving all of your life for all of Jesus's. He talked about how difficult it was for him and how difficult it was going to be for them. And in Philippians 3.15, he said this. He said, all of us then who are mature, we should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, God will make that clear. Paul wasn't worried about always having to argue and defend anything and everything to anybody. Paul just said this. If you're really following Jesus, if you've really made him master, just wrestle through the stuff. Figure it out. God will show you. Just keep wrestling through stuff. God will show you. But this is where we get back to step number three of coming to Jesus and following you. You've got to trust and test the Holy Spirit. You've got to trust and test the Holy Spirit. Well, Christian, how do I, as I wrestle through these things, Christian, as I find myself disagreeing with God, Christian, as I find myself not liking God today because of what I've just learned, as I, find, as I found myself trying to figure out if what you've said about Christianity is real, whether or not I want to be a Christian. What, what do I do? Wrestle through it? Well, how, how am I going to know what that means? You trust and you test the Holy Spirit. How's that work? Let me show you. Acts 15.8, they're trying to figure out this process. And Peter said the, the answer is very simple. Listen, God knows the heart. God knows people's hearts. God knows your heart. And he shows who accepts him by giving the Holy Spirit to them. So as Christians, when we begin to exhibit a spirit that recognizes Jesus as master, recognizes Jesus as a spiritual authority, this spiritual trust begins to develop in our hearts 
even when we struggle to embrace things, there's this thought of, I'm not really sure about that. I don't really like that. But something inside me tells me I can trust God. Listen, folks, you can trust Jesus. If Jesus were alive today, you would want him to be your neighbor. You can trust Jesus. If Jesus was looking to marry someone today, you would want your daughter to marry Jesus. You can trust Jesus. If you had to pick one person to play on your kickball team, you can trust Jesus. Like, if you could pick one person to be president over anything, you can trust Jesus. If you had to sit down and have a hard conversation with anyone, you would want it to be Jesus. You can trust Jesus. And we see as we learn to trust Jesus, we learn to wrestle, we learn to struggle, we learn to exist in tension, but we learn, you know, I I don't have all this figured out, but I just believe if that's the way Jesus wants it, If that's what Jesus says, I just have to trust he knows better than I do. Because I just trust Jesus. In 1 John 4, 1 through 3, the Apostle Apostle John is writing about this instance of how do we know people who are really following Jesus versus those who are not. And John says, dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is in the world. John said, here's the spirit of Antichrist, people who recognize Jesus but not as God. Oh, I love Jesus, but I am not going to let him tell me what to do. I love Jesus, but he is not my master. I love Jesus, and I know what he says here, but I disagree with him. John says, that's the spirit of Antichrist. You can tell people who really follow Jesus because they say, I love Jesus and my spirit trusts Jesus. I may not like what he has to say. I may have to really wrestle through this and never have my questions answered until I get to eternity one day, but I trust Jesus enough. If he, if he is who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say he is, one day when I get to heaven and go have this conversation with him, he's going to help me understand it in a way that really puts my soul at peace. God's spirit slowly begins to convince people that life according to Jesus' word and Jesus' standard can be trusted and it should be followed. And Jesus said, this is what the Spirit will do for you. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm going to spend the Holy, send the Holy Spirit to you. Here's what he's going to help you do. Jesus said, unless I go away, the advocate won't come. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus said, the, the Holy Spirit is going to come And it's going to help you see things that you never thought were wrong. It's going to help you see them as sin. Because it's going to show you God's standard and the world's standard, and you're going to see things differently. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and it's it's going to see things that you would have, things you would have never thought were the right way to live. Loving your neighbor, praying for your enemies, forgiving people who hurt you. The Holy Spirit's going to show you a new righteous way to live. It's going to be different than what you thought, but the Holy Spirit's going to show you how to live like me. The Holy Spirit's going to give you wisdom in regards to judgment and where we used to think, you know, why, man, why can't God accept everyone? We're going to understand God in a way that says, man, God really shouldn't accept anyone, but he's accepted me. Wow. I'm going to change the way you think. The Holy Spirit's going to help you do that. And here's my belief. If we're willing to trust the Holy Spirit to move people towards the truth of Scripture, 
And if we will test ourselves as to the authority of Jesus in our lives, we're going to be sure to never dilute what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're going to be sure to never put people on a road that runs real close to following Jesus, but ends up at a different place. So Christian, what does this look like? I had two conversations in the past month that really I see, I see this process in. I have people asking me about two separate issues, current events that are, that are kind of, that are kind of crazy. You could pick 10 of them and they're, they're, they're in that mold. And the two different people who came and asked me, hey, what do you, what do you think about this issue? And I, you know, told them Galatians, I said, one, I, I don't think, I don't have an opinion on it. I don't, I don't believe now that I've given my life to Jesus, I'm entitled to my opinion. I'm entitled to Jesus' opinions. So let me tell you what I think the Bible says here. And I had someone say, I don't care what the Bible says. I want to know what you think. And I said, I think what the Bible says. And they said, then I don't want to be a part of your church. And I said, I understand that. But it's not my church. I'm just a pastor. It's God's church. He sets the rules, not me. And they walked away. I said, Christian, did that hurt your feelings? Yes. Did it um, embarrass you a little bit? Make you mad a little bit? Do you want to punch someone like Paul punched Peter? Maybe. But I prayed about that. You know, it's like, it's hard. I said, what'd you do? I looked at Scripture and said, God, if your spirit is in them, you'll figure it out. It's not up to me to convince people. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I just tell them what God says. I had another person that I was talking to, spent some time with. He said, hey, what's your, tell me what you think about this. Same process. I don't think anything. Um, I can, I can, I'm not sure what you're asking. If you're asking me what God says, what the Bible says, I think I can show you that. And, and took some time to walk through this. And they said this, I don't know that I agree with that. I don't know that I like that. But if that's what the Bible says, I'm, will, I'm willing to work through that if you'll give me time. So of course. It's just a picture of how you can see the spirit inside somebody. In Genesis 32, we meet a man named Jacob. His dad is Isaac. His grandpa is Abraham. We're told he really wanted the blessing of God in his life. But he struggled in life a little bit. And it said he actually wrestled with God one night in an angelic form. He wrestled with God all night long. And it said in wrestling with God, he wouldn't let God go until God blessed him. But in order for him to receive the blessing of God, it said God touched his hip socket and it shrunk the socket of his hip and he hurt him. God hurt him. God wounded him in order to bless him. And it said Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. I had a pastor say one time, never trust a Christian without a limp. Never trust a Christian without a limp. Because if someone has not wrestled enough with God, for God to break them in some area of their life, you can't really trust them. As I look at what it takes to come to Jesus and what it takes to follow Jesus, I pray that our church develops a limp in our community. I pray that we wrestle through these issues so much so that people in our church that would like to put obstacles in the way of people coming to Jesus... God would break them. And all of your preconceptions of what it takes for someone to become a Christian, I pray that God breaks you and that he breaks our church and that we'll be known as a city and a place that makes it easy to come to Jesus because God doesn't want it difficult to be difficult to come to Jesus. And I, I pray we limp in that way, that we are known as a place where it's easy to come to Jesus. But I also pray that we spend so much time wrestling with God that those in our church who would like to come to Jesus without following Jesus as master, that he would break you. 
and that he would wound you in such a way that your spirit would break so that it would align with God's spirit and you might limp a little bit and you might be different forever but that we would be willing to be a church that took some shots in our community because we were unwilling to dilute the word of God and say anybody can follow Jesus anyway. It doesn't really matter. That's not what the Bible says. So I pray that our church is a wrestling church. I pray that our church is a limping church. I pray that our church is a church that will ask every question to remove every obstacle that anyone has to come to Jesus. And I pray that our church is a wrestling church that will dig in and will refuse to let the word of God be diluted, but we will consistently divide what scripture says and say Jesus is master, his word has authority, and this is the way he said to go. And I may be tired of wrestling, so I may need to tag out. You might have to wrestle for a little bit. We're not going to quit till we've wrestled through it. But we're going to let Jesus be God. We're going to let Scripture have authority. And we're going to keep moving forward. I believe if we do that, we'll see people far from God in our community become passionate Christians who, living for Jesus, make a difference in the world. Let's pray together.